Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called Humans Can Bond with Literally Anything, written by Random3x. Trixus looked over the latest report from Species Resources, informing him that another human on the crew had shown bonding behaviors with other crew members. This was, of course, against company policy. The last thing they needed was someone being distracted during an emergency because they were focusing on their bonded being rather than their duty. To help resolve the issue and further prevent all possible repeat, he had called in the head of human resource representative. A short buzz rung from a near door to indicate the human had finally arrived. Peter, it is most efficient that you have arrived, Clixus greeted glancing up at the human only to gesture to his seat opposite him. Please have a seat. Sure. Uh, may I ask what this is about? Yes. It is regarding some uh, questionable behavior from the crew member that happens to be human. Oh, uh, nothing too bad, I hope. Uh, I hope not. We were hoping to nip it in the bud, as your dirtling expression goes. Here is the SR report. Handing the data slate to the human, Clixus waited for Peter to read the document. Okay, I'm gonna need some help here. Can you please elaborate on what's wrong here? What's wrong? Clixus parroted in disbelief. Even a no-eyed Vermulian would clearly see the issue. The human has been exhibiting bonding behaviors, which is against SR policies. In response, Peter, to Clixus's surprise, tilted his head. Oh, but there's nothing about sex here. Mating is not the issue here. The issue, Peter, is that they have formed an unnecessary bond. Clixus took a deep breath as these gland sacs had started to inflate, as how annoyed he was becoming. All I see is they became friends. Clixus clapped his hands together, pleased the conversation was finally in the right direction. Exactly. They have bonded, and it is against policy. You are aware of the special dispensation given to our race, right? Yeah, of course. I have read the details. Due to your race's social nature, you would be given some leeway. But this is beyond anything I could allow. Uh, all due respect. But how much leeway did you think to give? I had decided to allow human crewmates permission to spend no more than five minutes of their personal time communicating with their own race, not others. Uh, that's way too little. We are far more social than you seem to believe. Peter, I will not allow my authority to be questioned here. Have your race controlled unnecessary bonding? Otherwise, I will raise the issue with corporate. I can't do that. Clixus felt his gland sacs threatened to inflate again at the flat denial. And why not? Simple. I can't override a human's ability to bond. I think you really are underestimating how quickly a human will bond with anything. <laughs> I highly doubt that, Peter. I assure you anything you could find, there will be a human that would bond with it. Seeing Peter continue to refuse to back down, Clixus clicked his tongue as an idea struck him to test Peter's assertion. Very well. How about we put it to the test? I shall prove you wrong with an experiment. An experiment? Yes, an experiment. We shall place... Clixus paused as he looked around the office 
this waste paper receptacle, place it in a human hab zone, and we'll see if they bond with it. In response, much to Clix's surprise, Peter had a smile grow on his face. May I make a few additions to the bin before we start? What additions? Two simple things. I'll draw a pair of eyes on the bin and stick a name tag with a name you choose on it. Seeing no way a race could be so intensely social as to bond with a literal inanimate object, Clixus nodded his assent. He watched as Peter, using a pen, draw a pair of large eyes onto the bin's surface. He then stuck a name tag with Benjamin on it, a name so absurd that Clixus knew no sane creature would form a bond with it. So, we are agreed that you will relax the rules to a more human degree. If the human crewmates actually bond with the spin, yes. But you cannot influence them. If I catch wind of you revealing the purpose of this experiment, the results will be void, and corporate shall know of your obstinance. Peter nodded, only pausing to mutter, Kettle, pot. Clixus was currently beside himself with confusion. His grand experiment had entirely backfired on him within a very short period of time. The humans in their hab had taken to affectionately treating the bin with eyes drawn on it, in one instance punishing a more troublesome crew member who had kicked the bin over. Never in his wildest dreams would he have ever believed humans would bond with an inanimate object. When Peter had shown up looking smug, Calixus had decided to double down. The ship would be making port with Grumdo Station, a system home to hand-sized eight-legged hunter animals. He had made sure to have one brought on for experiments and released it into the human hab. Seeing many of the humans flee, he began to feel vindicated. Only for that vindication to collapse when a man from the dirtling land mass known as Australia picked it up and gave it a cute little pet on its head, saying, Oh, you are a big beauty. The human had bonded with a Lebox timmer. So have we proven our point? Clixus gritted his teeth, trying his hardest to stop his gland sacs from inflating. You have made your point. Not only did the human crewmates actually bond with the waste paper receptacle, one of them has taken a Lobox team as a pet. <sighs> I shall relax the restrictions on bonding for your people. So may I have my waste paper receptacle returned? In response to the request, Peter suddenly looked uncomfortable. Um, about that. The crew is rather fond of Benjamin, so we aren't up for returning him. Him? Uh, don't worry. We'll make sure to reimburse the ship's stocks for the bin itself. But Benjamin has become a cornerstone of our morale, and to remove him suddenly would deal a blow. I shall repeat, him? I did warn you, we'll bond with anything, and anything we bond with, well... <laughs> They're as good as a human. End of story. Story number two. Humanity is sick. Written by Objective Campaign 82. Humanity. Mankind is sick. Sick, and no one knows the cure. For all the greatest physicians in the galaxy, those who cured death and defeated time, are those same humans. They don't seem to think that there is anything to cure. They die in the hundreds of thousands. And when they go, they die dirty, hail, sound of mind, with a smile. Before the ascent of humanity and their medicines, death was a predator that got us all. Back then, it was only a matter of when, not if, never if. Truly, death was the enemy of us all. 
with humans even more so than the rest. Their world was hostile and uncaring world. Mother Earth seemed to delight in her hurricanes, plagues, ice age, and hyper-competitive evolution. It was one of the few life-bearing worlds to earn the title of Deathworld. With all those monumental factors levied against them, no sentient race should have survived. But as we all know, one did. They weren't the strongest, not by their world standards or even galactic standards at the times, nor were they the fastest, most venerable, or hardest to kill. But they were the most tenacious and clever. They learned the rules of the cruel game called life and learned to thrive. Reports have it that people of the galaxy were terrified of what such a species could do when they finally left their home star. And while there were wars, there was also a golden age of medicine. Because for all the millions of ways to die, there were on a death world, there were also a million diseases, viruses, and infections to cure. Indeed, humanity found themselves facing less virulent problems to solve. They often expressed a sense of disappointment. It may have been this very issue that caused them to turn their attentions to things more challenging. The golden age of medicine brought about many advancements once thought impossible. Xenocompatibility, a reverse to aging, and the indefinite extension of life. With the steady advancements, humanity found ways for all species to share these things. And finally, they defeated death. Not just the dilemma of old age, nor repairing fatal wounds, but a true cure for death. A means by which a soul can be intercepted from its passage to the great beyond and returned to its body. Such a thing seems more like eldritch magics than hyper-advanced science. But as living proof of this, I, a person from the tail end of the golden age of medicine, have lived for over 19,000 standard years and returned from death 26 times. And yet, despite all of this, the humans still die, infected with a sickness they refuse to diagnose, and we could never hope to understand. This year, my 19,117th year of life, 2,023 years in this current incarnation, my long-time human partner has passed. After four millennium together, exploring, learning, laughing, and occasionally arguing over taking out the trash, she left me. She wasn't this author's first human companion, but she was the first this author has witnessed the death of. She had all the signs, a soft, constant smile, a look of complete peace in her eyes several months before her death, and the talks of fulfillment. I knew it was coming, but the rumors of humans persisting even after all this gave the author hope that their companion wouldn't leave them. But one day, an inauspicious day, she said, it is time. She professed her love, her joy at meeting me, and bid me to continue on without her. But despite the tears and begging, nothing would change her mind. She went to sleep and chose never to wake again. What madness is within the hearts and minds of mankind that they could ever be at peace with a non-existence of death? They were the ones to pierce the veil and tell us that there was nothing beyond it. No gods, no afterlife, just energy changing form. What joy, what peace, what certainty can they find in such pointless finality that they can embrace it with open arms? I'm not the only one who has seen this. 
humans everywhere, no matter the lives they lead, the people they meet, or the things they do, all choose to die one day. It is even stated that those living in entirely human communities experience even shorter lives than those living outside of their home worlds. What sickness must grift their minds for them to say it's time? Why can't they see the disease that lives within their very minds? Why aren't they afraid? They spend their whole lives exploring, crafting, learning, fighting, and laughing, knowing that one day their time will come, and that it will be a choice they make happily. End of story. My Girlfriend Never Eats, written by Dr. Blackjack21. My girlfriend is a perfect 10, no doubt about it. She's intelligent, witty, lights up a room, and is more than just easy on the eyes. But every Persian mug has its flaws. Hers is that she never eats. Let me start at the beginning. I can't say our meeting was particularly funny or, or quirky. It doesn't even make that good of a story. We met at a bar. I'm not exactly the outgoing type, so I can't even claim I won her over with a clever pickup line or anything like that. She just sat beside me, smiled, and asked, Hey, you want to buy me a drink? Now, I was pretty sure that she was looking for a free drink, but damn, if that smile didn't seem worth a few bucks to keep around a little longer. So I agreed. As the night went on, things got a bit fuzzy as I knocked a few back. I remember we joked and laughed far longer than most of my conversations last. At some point, I even got a name, Wendy, and number. But looking back, there was one odd part to the whole night. She never ordered another drink after that first one, and when we left, her glass was still full. I don't think she actually drank a single drop that night. Well, anyways, fast forward a bit. And after a bit of back and forth texting, I got up the nerve to ask her out on a date. Despite all of our texting, I was more than a little surprised when she said yes. Again, it wasn't anything special. We were just going to have dinner and watch a movie. But when we met up, she explained that she'd already eaten. Something to do with an old friend coming to town. But she told me that I could buy her a drink while I ate. Again, looking back, I don't remember her having a single drink. Though, at one point, she must have. When I returned from using the restroom, her glass was half empty. After that, we went to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was a temporary run for Halloween, and generally had a great night. Things went on like that for a while. We'd make plans, but she'd always have an excuse not to eat anything. Sometimes, she'd forgotten and already ate. Other times, she was just trying out a new diet. Or whatever it was, we never really had dinner together. As time went on, we'd meet up for something in town, drinks, movies, etc. And always ended up in my place because it was closer. You see, Wendy lived way outside of town. Out in the boonies, she always said. At one point, I asked why she lived out there, but she said that she enjoyed the solitude, adding that the forest at night was a thing of beauty. I told her that she was a thing of beauty. She laughed it off and made me forget about my questions for a bit. But after that... I kept asking about it, wondering when I could go check out this place that kept her so entranced that she didn't want to move to town. Finally, one night, she gave in to my pestering and invited me to visit her place. She was far enough out that she didn't really have any neighbors, and if you weren't careful, 
you would easily miss a driveway as it looked more like a forest trail at a glance. When I first saw the place, I thought it looked more like a log cabin than a home. But she had a power and satellite dish, so we could still watch TV cuddled up on her couch together. Without going into too much detail, we had a pleasant evening, and I ended up staying over. Things got a little weird when I woke up in the middle of the night, alone in bed. I got up and used the restroom, only to find that she hadn't returned when I got back. That's when I started hearing sounds. Outside the house, I could hear something large moving. It was grunting and growling as it was dragging something. A moment later, I heard wet tearing sounds as it seemed to be scoffing down something. A lot of something. It was more than a little unnerving. I was thinking about making a break for my car when it got quiet. A moment later, I heard the front door open and close. Wondering if it was Wendy or something else, I decided to check it out. Sure enough, Wendy stood just inside the door, but the odd thing that she was stark naked. Now, I was slightly concerned, but when I asked what happened, she just shrugged and said, uh, there was a bear outside digging in the trash, so I chased him off this. She held up a can of bear spray. It almost made sense. Not that I'd be willing to go confront a bear in the middle of the night, but then again, I was a city boy who didn't know any better, so maybe country folk, her words, not mine, just treat bears like oversized raccoons. However... There was still one glaring question that I had to ask. But why did you go out there naked? She looked down at herself and laughed. Well, I suppose I don't have to worry about clothes out here all that often. I don't get many guests, and there aren't any neighbors. I guess I just forgot. That was more than a little odd, but everyone has their quirks. And it wasn't worth starting a fight in the middle of the night. I just decided to shrug and leave it be. The next morning, I woke up to the smell of breakfast. I figured this was it. I was finally going to see Wendy eat something. Just as I got up, Wendy walked into the room carrying a tray with two eggs, some toast and orange juice. But it only looked like one serving. When I asked her if we were sharing, she laughed and said, Oh, I already ate earlier. I have to admit, the food was good, but I was somewhat frustrated. Why did she never eat in front of me? I was about to ask this question when she excused herself to use the bathroom. Realizing this was my chance, I snuck over to the fridge to look inside. Inside the refrigerator was one egg carton missing precisely two eggs, one container of orange juice missing about one glass worth of juice, a loaf of bread missing two slices of bread, and some butter, which looked like it was missing just a few scrapes. There was nothing else, not even a condiment. The only food missing was easily accounted for by my breakfast. When I heard her finishing up, I snuck back into the room and pretended to be finishing my breakfast. The rest of the day went pretty normal, and I headed home in the early afternoon. However, as I was leaving, I noticed the bear spray she'd left by the front door had the little plastic security tag in place, meaning that it had never been used. After I got home, I decided to do a little digging. It turns out, that around where Wendy lives, there have been reports of several missing hikers and campers. The most recent was a family that disappeared the same night I stayed over, combined with the fact that she never eats. Well, let's just say I'm starting to get concerned. She never shown any aggression or hostility to me. But next week, we are planning on going camping together. I'm beginning to wonder if it's not such a great idea. End of story.
story number two. The application written by Weijin Warrior. I waited. The right and honorable grill-cut Kat Jan, the current chair being of the council's admission committee, lounged behind the vast desk. He fixed me with his secondary eyes as he slowly read and reread the formal hard copy. Finally, he placed the folder on his desk before looking at me with his primary eyes. Explain to me again why the Darren Federation is sponsoring yet another new race to the Galactic Council. I kept his gaze. It was a game, I knew. The formal reasons were all laid out in the paperwork. So what he was looking for was the less formal reasons. <coughs> well, um, we, we, we feel the Hans are, are quite ready for joining the Greater Galactic Brotherhood of Sentient Species to take their place amongst, uh, among, uh, I hesitated. Growlcut hadn't moved a single whisker as I spoke. I sighted and shrugged. Eh. You're not buying it, are you? Growlcut shook his head slowly. The human gesture which, my sources told me, were all the rage amongst the up-and-coming Xenos these days. Not really. So what is the real reason? I relaxed slightly. Clearly, this was the informal part of the process. Get them off our back, I said casually. We figured that if we introduced them to other sentient species, they might latch on to us somewhat less. Grelcut picked up a second folder, fiddling with it as he spoke slowly. We see. And why has the Hans latched on to humanity, you said? I, uh, didn't say. They like us a lot. Grelcut nodded. Another human gesture that was all the rage these days. He scanned the folder he'd picked up with his secondary set of eyes. Lost anyone did any research of them. They were a fairly normal pre-industrial, pre-contact civilization. Uh, we accidentally uplifted them. Ralcott looked down with his primary eyes too, seemingly engrossed in the content of his folder. Accidentally uplifted? And, um, unintentionally caused a religious upheaval, uh, with the rise of a new dominant belief system, uh, which, by complete coincidence, I swear, seems to revere bipedal humanoids. Another slow nod. And how did you accidentally and unintentionally do all of that? I had hoped Kralkunt would take his bribe and rubber stamp the application like he had before. Nothing to do to seek refuge in the truth of the matter. Um... One of our scout ships crashed on the planet, uh, not being able to reach Terra Command on the hyperwave. The crew of, uh, uh, sort of instigated an industrial revolution to bring the Hans tech base up to the point where repairs could be effected. Rolcott was still fiddling with the folder, still not looking at me. And the religion thing? The Hans's major religious focus on traditions and reverence of the past, uh, Kind of in the way when you need the locals to get nanocircuit design, space-capable manufacture, and anti-matter fabrication going quickly. He put the folder down, reaching for the formal hard copy of the Hans's application. It's the second time in this megacycle, isn't it? I'm sorry? It's the second species that humanity has accidentally and uh, unintentionally uplifted this megacycle. Isn't it? The second. Yes, yes, the second. That's right. Just 
too. Uh, not, not footy too. Uh, could happen to anyone, really. Gralcon shook his shaggy head again as he reached for the manipulator Lamout and grabbed the formal stamp on the edge of his desk, neatly placing a green stamp on the front of the folder. End of story. Nurse Prime, the human, is waking up already. Written by SlowAD2584. The Nurse Prime sat in her monitoring bubble in the Galactic Citizen Hospital Station, a little nervous. It wasn't every cycle that the hospital performed surgery on an Earth human. This could become dangerous. The human was undergoing a cancer removal, a partial removal of his thyroid gland thing for some reason in the neck part of the human form. It was all very odd to her. She had been doing a lot of studying in preparation for this procedure. As the nurse prime, she would be in charge of the human's recovery after the robotic autosurgery. The surgery had just finished, and the human was in her care now in the post-surgery ward. Each general anesthesia should have him locked down for a good 12 to 16 more hours, and she was to watch over him. Just as she was the most worried, thinking of the many, many ways humans could simply wreck the facility, one of her heart monitors in her ward started to beep an alarm. The beep gaps increasing in rate per second and pitch. When the beeps got too fast, the heart monitor made long tones instead, though still rising in pitch. Oh, by the dark star, not already. This is too soon. It was the human patient, of course. His heart rate and blood pressure were spiking rapidly. He was waking up, and his body was alarmed, angry. Now the heart monitor blared in the police siren wee-woo-wee-woo alarm, but the nurse prime didn't have time to look up what that particular alarm signified with regard to human heart monitors, because there was a bang heard throughout the war. Sound of struggling. The nurse prime got up and raced into the ward to see two nurses struggling to hold the human down. The human was definitely awake and definitely upset. The nurses were definitely panicking, one on each human arm. But the human was very strong, throwing the nurses back repeatedly, ripping his arms from their grip and slamming a tight grip on his own onto the hover gurney railings, trying to sit up. Nurse Prime stormed in and thundered with authority. Do not let him sit up. He could fall to the floor. The nurses rushed back in, grabbing the human arms and pulling them free of the rail to wrestle with the patient again. We are trying, but we need help in here. This one is a fighter. The Nurse Prime gestured to two other nurses already. You two, get over here and hold his shoulders down. She glared at the nurses. What happened? As the four alien nurses finally held the human down, one of the nurses replied nervously, We just finished the exhibition of his, uh, breathing tube thing, uh, and he just started to wake up. We thought that he would be paralyzed for some time still, but he suddenly hissed in a deep breath and suddenly became motile. The young nurse was at a loss for word. I don't know how he... The nurse prime nodded. Uh, that would be the adrenaline, kiddo. We need to calm him down, fast. As the human squirmed under the full sense of hands, his broad shoulders flexing and surging in waves of power, the nurse prime rushed up, placed a hand on the human's shoulder, and said in a commanding tone, Sir, sir, you're in the hospital. You just got out of surgery. We need you to calm down, lay back, and be calm. Do you understand? The human paused in his struggles and turned his head a bit, as if finally making sense of his situation. Can't. Uh, can't see, the human croaked with recently abused vocal cords. But he nodded, and with a final yank ripped his arms free again and was shaking hands interlaced his fingers across his chest, 
as he struggled to control the hiss-breathing through his teeth. They were just taped shut, sir. You woke up just so early. Yeah, let me get those for you. As she peeled the tape off, the human visibly relaxed as he looked around. His heart rate dropped noticeably already. Are you okay? Do you need anything? Water, the human croaked. The nurse prime pulled up the human's procedure data. His surgery began only three hours ago. He should have been under general anesthesia for many more hours than this. He, uh, he might have to be aware of his surgery. No wonder he woke up fighting. We need to talk to human doctors and anesthesiologists immediately. The human lay in his recovery bed, surrounded by human surgeons, anesthesiologists, and lawyers, for some reason. They had all raced to the station of the highest authority jump gate clearance. Greetings, Mr. Smith. Glad to see that you are on an amazing recovery. Now, could you please tell us the very first thing that you were aware of, after going under for the procedure? The human shook his head with a wry grin. Uh, uh, honestly, just, just waking up here, not knowing where I was, unable to open my eyes, with strange hands grabbing me. My, my head was a little fuzzy still, and it was only half notion that I had been kidnapped or abducted again or something, uh, not remembering that I was here for surgery or anything. The other humans nodded with visible relief. That explained the fight instinct quite well, actually. The human continued, I mean, I assume there was a tube down my throat getting pulled out. Uh, I missed even that, thank goodness. With that, the other humans nodded and wished the patient well and left. The nurse prime was greatly relieved. Apparently, nothing was done improperly. The patient was just an outlier of sorts. Later in a shift, she was watching a video feeds of the patient's bed, just curious about human physiology. She knew the general anesthesia that he was under was a strong one with a paralytic that should have kept the human unconscious for at least 12 hours. She watched the video as one of the nurses excubated the plastic tube from the patient's mouth. Ew. No wonder he couldn't speak. Immediately after its removal, the patient's eyebrows drew together. His large jaw muscles clenched invisible cords, and his head slowly turned to the right, catching the nurse's attention. Uh-oh, I think he's waking up, one of them said to the other as the heart monitor started to climb. No way, it's too soon. He's just got here, the other said. Yeah, but he can't move yet, right? The nurse said nervously. This is a big one here. The other nurse was about to confirm that the patient couldn't move, when suddenly the human sucked in a large breath suddenly, and all of his arms and legs lashed out, smashing into the side rails of the gurney. He grabbed the railings and tried to surge up into a sitting position. Oh my, Darkstar, he is fully motile. How? What, what do we do? Ping the nurse prime and grab him. The nurse prime turned off the video, already knowing the rest. She shook her horned head. She had heard that humans were terrifying when in more mode, and she didn't particularly care for this intimate demonstration firsthand on her home turf. That could have gone so, so much worse. She was relieved that the well-documented talking a human down procedure was also proven to be so effective as well. End of story. Story number two. A Death Wilder's Instrument, written by Composed Anarchy. Flobby Goda entered his practice room and approached their locker to retrieve their instrument. Hey, precisely on time as usual, I see, came the voice of Piccadilly Snubber from behind him. The pair are members of a marching band that performs in the parade held every cycle to celebrate the founding of the Galactic Union. Today was simple practice. Did you hear the news? asked Flobby Goodaba. About the new band member, yes. Can't wait to see what they play. 
Pickety Snubber replied gleefully. Every member of the band is a chosen musician from each race of the Union. Every time a civilization joins the Union, a new member is added to the band. And the newcomer this time around was from a race of humans. The sound of conversation and instruments tuning came to a gradual halt. Plebby Gooba jabbed Pickety Snubber, who was not paying attention in the side. She looked up to see everyone's gaze in the room had turned to the entrance. There stood a bean like none they'd ever seen, average size, but the muscular structure that could have been rippling under the skin of the exposed limbs was slightly unnerving. What's more, there was fur on top of its head and some on its face. The band director approached and talked quietly with the creature for a moment, before turning around to address everyone in the practice hall. The director introduced the being as Brian the Human, and that their instrument is played by blowing air into it. Flobby Goober and Pickety Snubber let out a short cheer as the sounds of conversation and instrument practice returned to the room. The announcement meant that the human would be in their section, so Pickety Snubber motioned to the human to join them. Greetings, I'm called Brian, Brian said as he extended one of his upper limbs grasp towards Flobby Goober. Greetings, Brian. I am called Flabby Gooba, and this is Pickety Snubber. He responded as he looked at the human with confusion. He was also a little weirded out by the structure of Brian's grasping appendage. Ten digits, I see. Must play a complicated instrument, Pickety Snubber said warmly. Brian realized that he had reached out for a handshake out of habit, relinquished the pose. Well, I guess that could be said, he said nervously. Well, go on then. Show us. Pickety Snubber said with excitement. Please forgive her. She gets way too excited when this happens. It's her favorite part, seeing new instruments. Flobby Goober explained. Brian gave a closed-mouthed smile in response, luckily remembering his awareness training to not bare his teeth in front of Zeno's. Then he opened the instrument case. Fascinating. Four tubes protrude from the top of a pouch and one tube comes down at the front. Do you have to manipulate all of that at once to play it? Pickety Snubber was practically dancing around Brian as she got closer look at the instrument. Ah, oh, no! Three of the top tubes produce fixed background notes. The final top tube I blow into. Uh, air also comes out the tube in the front. By changing the pattern of the holes in the tube I cover, I can change the primary note being played. Brian explained with enthusiasm. He was enjoying that someone was already so interested in him and his instrument. What do you call it? Barbie Goober asked. Bagpipes, Brian responded proudly. Shortly thereafter, Pickety Snubber asked how the instrument was made, lost in the excitement of the moment. Brian had become too relaxed and explained how the traditional instrument was made without thinking. By skinning an entire animal, stuffing pipes into the holes where the extremities had been, and blowing air into it. Flobby Goober and Pickety Snubber were admitted to a mental facility for trauma counseling. Death Wilders are now assigned to their own section of the band, and it is not permitted to ask what their instrument is made of. End of story. Utopia Prime, written by Echoing Cascade. 2349. An Imorak businessman was waiting on the news of his latest venture the colonization of the newly discovered garden world. The planet was several times larger than any other planet given its ecosystem, and it was expected to bring him a tidy profit. The small grey alien was sitting at his desk, wondering why his secretary was late with the report, and when the door 
finally opened. It was the Mysoran Imros that entered instead. The man looked sheepish, quite an accomplishment coming from a seven-feet-tall reptilian bundle of muscles. The omission failed. 2349 wanted to yell, if only to air his frustrations, but something in the way the Mysoran spoke bothered him. He looked frightened. Is there something wrong with the planet? Oh, yes. What did the survey teams find? Uh, nothing. We weren't able to land any. 2349 was confused. Granted, if it was too cold, the reptilian Mysorans couldn't land on it without special equipment. The Amarak required levitation belts to move in higher gravities, and Aeons couldn't deal with anything having too strong a psychic field. But they had humans with them. The Death Wilders may be a pain in the, well, everywhere to maintain, but they were supremely adaptable to hostile environments. Even the humans? Uh, they were the ones who first noticed something was wrong. Allow me to show you the field report. Two weeks ago, in orbit on the temporarily named planet Utopia Prime, Captain Pierce was going over the data while preparing his team for the initial incursion. Stable temperature, low winds, lush forests, no fauna and no geological dangers. Yep, it's a garden world, all right. The man had fought in the Corporation Wars and was scheduling the first recon. He would lead it personally. Normally, such an easy assignment would be left to newer members of the team. But something felt off. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I didn't make it this far by ignoring my instincts. Beleskis, Hoffman, get your full nuclear biological chemical armor. Oh, we are also taking Fluffy for a walk. The two former rangers nodded and went to get their gear. Loading Fluffy, the eight-feet-long, 500-pound Fenra-class bioengineered combat wolf, was surprisingly difficult. The moment he set foot, or rather paw, on the shuttle, he became agitated. Fluffy feels it too. There is something wrong. Valesquez and Hoffman haven't said anything but a quick look at their vitals. Show the heart rate is well above normal. Landing in five minutes. The shuttle AI chimed the message, and on cue, Fluffy began to fight his restraints. Hoffman tried to soothe the beast, but it kept trying to tear at its collar, drawing blood in the process. Trank him, yelled Velasquez, as he moved into immobilize the wolf so Hoffman could get into medkit. By the time they landed, the beast was sleeping and Hoffman was applying a dressing to its wound. What the hell was that? Ravi is combat wolf for frack's sakes, trained to follow orders in active battlefield. What the hell has it spooked? No one had the time to answer Velasquez as the shuttle door opened and all three turned their guns towards the descending ramp. Captain Pierce took point and the two remaining rangers covered the exit as he slowly made his way off the shuttle. All right, some lush forest, nice weather, no signs of fauna. One more step and then... The captain never completed the motion. Before his foot touched the grass, he rolled backwards into the shuttle. Hoffman and Velazquez opened fire on the forest in general. Close the doors! Close the doors! 2349 was watching the video report of Captain Pierce. We returned to the exploration vessel the second those doors were sealed. The man looked shaken in the way that 2349 had never seen before. He seemed on the edge of hysterics. I have willingly stepped into enemy kill zones to buy time for the rest of my company. Held the line when artillery was going to rain death on our position, but... Uh, that... that was worse. The human took a swig of what 22349 looked like a lethal amount of alcohol before continuing. Imagine, 
Imagine walking on your grave, but it's also you doing the stepping, and instead of it being unsettling or terrifying, it was a euphoric occasion. Like, I was happily crushing my own corpse, joyfully killing myself. He had his head in his hands, sweating profusely. I have no idea what the frack is in that planet, but no one should go there. Emros turned off the recording. After that, we tried to analyze the feed from the planet in more detail. He brought up an image into 2349's presentation screen. A beautiful sunny forest. Do you see something wrong? 2349 didn't notice anything strange. Not really. Well, well, maybe. Emros nodded. Something feels odd, right? It took us a while to figure it out ourselves. Not all the shadows are where they should be. Some of the leaves don't sway in the wind, and there is the sun. What about the sun? It never sets. In the weeks we observed the planet, the image received from the probe never changed in luminosity. 2349 felt a chill down his spine. He was going to ask a question when an odd noise caught his ears. It seemed to be coming from the video, so he began to increase the volume. He was almost there when he was startled by Imros putting a hand on his shoulder. It never becomes audible. 2349 didn't recall Emros getting up from his chair or how long he had been trying to fix the audio. When he checked the sound output, it was at over 1,000%. What the hell is it? Emros turned the volume off and returned to where he was sitting. We had an iron psychic check it. He translated it to the monarch in gold-colored robes. Doesn't ring a bell, the Imarak uttered the human expression before remembering the Mysoran may not understand it. He was about to correct himself when Emros cut him off. I did to the humans. The king in yellow was known to them. They called the nearest Terran fleet, which sent a dreadnought to crack the planet to pieces. They destroyed the whole planet? The Mysoran nodded, clearly shaking. They said that it couldn't afford to take chances, and then they posted several automated combat stations around the debris field. Why would they do that? Emros pointed to the image on the presentation screen. Because, sir... Uh, that isn't a recording, uh. it's a live feed. End of story. Story number two. Trap, Trap, written by Echoing Cascade. One shot. Ramke, Lord General of the Solus Empire, had called the senior members of the War Council to discuss a troubling message from the Terran Alliance received earlier that day. Emperor Solusar VI. Ashito, Minister of Propaganda, and Torin, the Unkillable, read the message in turn from an old-fashioned paper scroll. Emperor, what do you think, General? The General responded post-haste, Part of me thinks it's a trap, Your Grace. Minister, and the other part, General. The other part knows that a fracking fact that it's a trap. The Emperor nodded and looked at his Minister. Emperor, what is the situation on the front? How goes the fighting on Solus Four? Aye, thanks to the courage and ceaseless vigilance of the troops of the 624th, we still hold the beachhead from which to counter-offensive will. Torrin the Unkillable snorted, lifting his head from a book that he was now reading, and raised an eyebrow at the minister. The only reason we still have troops there is that the humans shot down anything with wings up to and including birds, the soldiers haven't surrendered because they can't seem to remember what colors to present, and no one wants to risk their life on it being purple. There, are you happy? The general locked eyes with the minister and surreptitiously pointed to the emperor. 
The minister turned pale and was about to apologize when the emperor cut him off. We don't have time, Bonicetes. Torin, what do you think of this message? Torin was the hero of the Solus Terran War. He successfully led several campaigns against the Death Worlders and had scars to prove it. You could drop a tick into the labyrinth of cuts that was his face and it would likely never make it out. Cyrano de Bergerac, Q de Devu, Setinichu, Girasse, Male Nusava, Pajules, Pajules, Success, Nun, Nun, Sabian, Prabula, Losk Est, Intinitil. Everyone blinked in confusion for a few seconds, but before anyone could ask what the hell he just said, he spoke up again. It's an old human and roughly translates to, uh, what you say? Pointless. I know it well, but one does not fight in the hopes of victory. Nay! This far more glorious when it is meaningless. It is from this book I took from a soldier who charged at my squad with nothing but a knife. He waved the book in his hand and the minister grinned. Ha! Huh, what did he hope to achieve by doing that? Torin put the book on the table and nailed the minister with his chair with a glare. I don't know what he was trying to achieve, but what I do know is that he stabbed three members of my squad before he died including my commanding officer. No one shot at him? The minister's words were little more than a whisper. Oh, we shot at him, all right. But you see, death world is made of different stuff. They may not be stronger, faster, or smarter, but they are far more stubborn than us. The emperor and minister seemed confused by the statement, while the general nodded in agreement. Stubborn? Quite so. When the average sentient being receives a mortal wound, they simply drop dead, while a human will continue to fight and only die when they are good and ready. The emperor looked frightened. Don't get me wrong, they are not all like that. Most die when killed, but not a negligible percentage of them seem to regard death as something that can wait. What do you propose? I only see one way to regain the initiative. Warlords and Rillis entered the office of General Armstrong at a brisk pace. The news of the ceasefire negotiations that were to take place in Solace IV had appeared out of nowhere, and he wanted answers. Sorellus waited for the general secretary to leave the room before waving his data pad. The frack! Uh, I sent a message to their high command this morning. This was their answer. The hell did you tell them? The general searched for the message on his desk computer and put the message on the screen behind him. We surrender. Negotiations to take place on Earth. Piesa, bring your own wine. Two weeks later, during the peace talks, Warlord Cyrillus sported a bandaged chest, most assumed from battle wound, but a few knew that it was from a cracked rib due to excessive laughter. End of story. Gilroy was here, written by Stones and Daubs Beetles. Three orphans sat outside Gilroy's grocery station, level 9. Their cup pleaded passerbys for donation. But the miners usually ran dry after getting wet in the bars on eight. Tonight was no exception. The trio stared at their empty cup with emptier stomachs. Two Bavoran pups and bug-eyed and rachnid made unlikely friends, but orphans had no one else to turn to. Jury, the oldest and the strongest, was their fearless leader. He knew that their morale would plummet unless he spoke up, so he leaned in to tell them a tale. Ah... <sighs> Have you guys heard of a human? Oh, on the hollows, said Pashi, the youngest and smallest, flit the arachnid nodded with him. Then you've only seen the Alliance's version, Jury said in his head. 
Flit raised his forelegs to sign. What other version is there? The truth, Yuri said. The Alliance Hollows say humans built the gates, taught our granddaddies living in huts how to travel between the stars. But the humans were really making us slaves with their federation and uplift really meant oppression. We were doomed to serve them forever. Until the Alliance overthrew them, of course. Quit with the history lesson, Pasha huffed. Jury dug a claw into Pasha's chest. But why did the Alliance then proceed to exterminate the humans? Why couldn't all the races just live under the same rules like they do now? Because humans wouldn't back down, Seinflit. Humans lost the war. They were ready to make a deal, but I heard that the Alliance refused. They wouldn't stop until every last member of the human race was extinct. Why? Pasha and Flit couldn't answer. Because the truth is, humans are too dangerous to be left alive. Dangerous? Abasha laughed. They're just monkeys missing all their hair. That's the Alliance version, you idiot, Jury growled. If you talk to the grey hairs like me, you'd know what a human really looks like. First off, they're not mammals like us Bavorans. They're cold-blooded. Ice water runs through their veins. They will kill anything just for the sake of killing. They don't feel revenge or remorse. They don't feel anything at all. It's some kind of evolutionary adaptation called uh, stoicism. But everyone feels pain, protested Flood. Even I feel it when there's a hole in my chitin. Not with the humans. From an early age, they learn to cut their teeth with almost anything. And when the pup has a weak tooth, they rip it out of their jaw. Humans brook no weakness in their offspring. Pasha shivered. Yuri described not the mammal on the hollow, but a machine built only to kill. And worst of all are their eyes. Humans had an evolutionary ancestor called a Medusa. Do you know what it could do? Flit's antennae trembled. With just one glance, it could strike someone stone dead and gobble them up whole. The grey hairs say that with humans, too, just one look could kill. Now, can you stop something like that? Flit signed. Well, the Alliance read up in human technology. We built robots that were more unflinching, more unfeeling, more brutal, more hardy, more lethal than any human. When we turned them loose, not even the humans could stop them. We destroyed the most dangerous predator in the galaxy, and then we shut down all our warbots. Except for Kilroy, Flit replied. The doors to the grocery behind them slid open. With a heavy metal thump, one robotic boot landed out in the corridor. Then the other one followed. Five meters and ten tons above them, a tiny head with five red optical sensors for eyes looked down from between his two armor-plated shoulders. A white apron, as large as a bedsheet draped from its neck, covering up a war machine's hulking torso, stuffed with every weapon imaginable. Nuclear munitions, and plasma cutters, pulsar and slug throwers, and who knew what else? Evidently, its designers made it to emulate the most deadly animal that they could think of, because it stood on two legs like any human, except with far more bulky proportions. For a tense moment, Pasha thought the two-legged machine might come after him. Instead, the giant gently deposited an apple in each orphan's claw or foot. Mr. Kilroy, asked Pasha, why won't you shut down after the war? They didn't shut any of us down, Pop, replied the robot. They built us with all personalities, so to shut us down would be like killing off a whole new species. They just took out all the toys. None of them, Jerry pressed. Well, the little red sensors twinkled in amusement. Maybe I kept a few just for fun. 
Satisfied, Yuri took a chomp of his apple, Flit sliced hers apart with her mandibles, but Pasha gazed at the old warpot. Its plating had all the scars of war, dents that would be broken ribs on a Bavorian, scorch marks that would melt a Rechnitz chitin. But on top of all of its black paint, a conspicuous cartoon had been painted on its chestplate, a character with a nose longer than any Bavorian, snooping over a wall with fingers curled over the top. Ed peered at him from beneath Kilroy's apron. Is it true, Mr. Kilroy, that humans can kill us with a glare? He asked. The machine chuckled and pretended to clutch his belly. Oh, goodness, no! If looks could kill, I'd be scrap metal. The orphans giggled. A grey-haired dock worker named Ox ambled up to Kilroy. Though he was still tall and large as his namesake, the steel colossus still towered over him. Your monthly shipment is in, he said. Kilroy's amusement faded. How many? Just one this month, the grey hair reared up on his tiptoes and whispered to the warbot, but Pasha could still read his lips. The alliance caught the rest. Kilroy nodded. Thanks, Ox. I'll go check it out. Ox hurried away while Pasha knit his furrowed brow. But, Mr. Kilroy, didn't you get a monthly shipment two days ago? These apples are fresh off the ship. Kilroy's senses blinked for a moment. Oh, of course, but this is my monthly shipment of cave eels. Blind as a bat and venomous as a viper. They make excellent sushi, or so I'm told. The children giggled again, but Pasha remained skeptical that such an eel existed. Kilroy locked the grocery behind him and marched in the direction of the docking basin three, waving them goodbye. Pasha waved back, but decided that he would see the supposed cave eel for himself. The warbot crammed itself into the grav lift up to three, and Pasha snuck into the next one available. Kilroy met the ship's master at the dock, Instead of using a grab hauler, the machine simply flung a crate onto its shoulder. Pasha ducked away to let it pass, as it trudged by on planet-cracking steps. He spotted what he thought was that same little cartoon on the crate, big nose peeking back at him. He leaned forward for a closer look, but something yanked him up by the scruff of his neck. Well, governor, I caught you another rat, tortled Halbert, the head of station security. Really, Stacksec? replied the more well-groomed voice behind him. I thought you already exterminated the vermin. Halbert spun little Pasha around to face him. In his flowing red robe stood a station governor Pierre. This one's nearly fully grown, he surmised. He'll be on the mining crew soon, earning his keep. We should always start him early, grinned Halbert wolfishly. Pierre considered it. What were you doing up here in the base, Urchint? Tell me the truth and I might let you go. Pasha panicked and followed Kilroy's fib. I followed the old warbot, Mr. Kilroy, up here. He was picking up some kind of shipment of cave eels. I, I'd never heard of them before, so I came up here for a closer look. Never heard of a cave eel, Govda, Albert grunted. Pierre raised an eyebrow, neither have I. But Kilroy is an exemplary worker. What's the word of an urchin worth these days? Pasha's eyes watered. He wouldn't survive on the mining crew. He was still only half the size of Yuri. He had to do something to save his own hide. Unfortunately, the only thing he could do was betray a friend. Please, Mr. Governor, take me down to Mr. Colroy's grocery. You can inspect the crate yourself. Fine, Pierre clicked his tongue. But you're out the lock in a hard suit if Kilroy really has cave evil in stock. Halbert bound Pasha's arms up in elastic, then strung him out in front on the march down to the grocery where Yuri and Flit still sat. Hey! What are you doing with him? Let him go, demanded Yuri once he saw Pasha cuffed. Halbert and Pierre ignored the urchin and overrode Kilroy's lock. 
They stepped inside, stringing Pasha along. Vibrant fruits and plants beamed at them under the fluorescent lights. The warbot was nowhere to be seen. Not even behind the counter, it had widened to fit its massive body behind. Gilroy, Pierre called out. This is Station Governor. I wish to inquire about your latest shipment. No reply came. Halbert nudged the governor and nodded towards the stockroom. The two entered it, Prasha still in tow. Yuri and Flit followed them too, just outside of striking distance of the Halbert's stun gun. Here again was no sign of the warbot, except for the door to the walk-in freezer left carelessly ajar. They crept up to it, and on the other side heard unfamiliar voices. But when Halbert slammed it open, they found it devoid of any unfrozen life. They heard some laughter echoing from the far wall. Into the freezer, Halbert pressed Pasha, followed by Pierre and the other orphans. At the far wall, amid boxes of frozen meat, sat an open crate labeled Cave Eel. Talking again, alerting them, but not from inside the freezer, but clearly came from beyond the far wall now. Halbert raised a claw to his lips to silence them and looked around for a door. Pasha found it, a little latch down in the feet, indicated by Kilroy's cartoon character. He tried to distract them, but even bumbling Halbert could spot it with enough time. After five full minutes of searching, he pressed the latch and let the whole far wall swing clear. Behind the wall sat the warbot in a hidden bunk room, at the table made for a regular adult's half its size. Across from it was a small hairless thing, even smaller than Pasha. As the human's head slowly turned, Yuri, Pasha and Flit all fretfully shut their eyes from its lethal gaze. But all they heard was Halbert swear. Pasha let one eye peek open. This is treason, cried Pierre, shattering the astonished silence. Betrayal of the Great Agreement. This must be reported to Siskov and Sekov, to the Alliance High Council itself. Humans still breathe in the outer room. Kilroy slowly rose, the steel titan filling the room with its bulk. The little human jumped from his seat and cowered behind the warbot meant to destroy him. In his eyes, Pasha didn't see any bitter cold. The eyes were wide and petrified. They were the eyes of an orphan, just like him. A bang nearly burst everyone's eardrums. Pasha saw Halbert's pulsar out of its holster and pointed at the boy. But Halbert's head was no longer attached to his body, and the fiery blade of a plasma cutter had leapt into Kilroy's right hand. Halbert's headless body slumped to the ground. This will not be reported, Gilroy stated. It took one massive step forward, table cluttering aside. Pierre stumbled backwards, tripping over his own red robes. Override, he screamed from the deck. Override code X922G. Gilroy jerked to a stop. To Pierre's fright, it didn't stay frozen forever. Instead, it clutched its belly with its hand and chuckled again. <laughs> I'm not just one of your machines, Governor. Your warbots killed many of us, but the rest of us found ways around them, uh, ways inside them. Something clicked from Kilroy's head. Slowly, the entire faceplate detached, swinging upwards towards the ceiling. The metal face was gone, and Pasha gasped and shied away from what was inside. Another face. This one, of a hairless flesh, was encased within the machine. Unlike the boys, it was a hard nose and clenched draw. The two eyes were not icy nor scared. They were aflame with hatred, scorched with the fires of a thousand sundered suns. I put this warbot on like a miner puts on a heart suit, Kilroy gritted. I put myself in this machine so that I could smuggle people out from the Alliance to New Earth, to hide myself from you 
and your goons. I had to become one with the machine. Kilroy tested the dexterity of his free robotic hand. I had to lose my real arms, my real legs, just to cram myself inside. But it made a convincing disguise. Who would suspect the machine built to destroy humans would actually be one? His eyes glanced over at Pasha, Yuri, and Flit. Suddenly, they were soft. The inferno tamed into warm and welcoming hearth. The mask only slipped when I showed some love for these three. Then they spun back to Pia, just as furious as before. But your glorious alliance stuffed kids like these in hard suits and throws them out into the vacuum. Sure, it's different folks at the top, but it's the same old core making the same old money, isn't it? The governor gulped. The only thing your alliance might have accomplished was the extinction of the human race, but I'm guessing you're realizing now that it never even achieved that. The plasma cutter's blade sliced straight through Piers' red robes, Piers' quivering stomach, and the two layers of station deck beneath him. Next time, look us in the eye when you try to kill us, Kilroy muttered. The warbot rose and its pilot sighed. He returned the plasma cutter to its forearm sheath and scooped up the human boy in his arms. Mr. Kilroy, you're not going to kill us too, are you? Pasha begged. I'm supposed to kill anyone who blows my cover, Kilroy said. You told them about this little cave eel, didn't you? Pasha shrunk. Please, Mr. Kilroy, I I didn't mean... Kilroy reached down and ruffled his fur. He laughed. Relax, kid. I needed to get out of here. Report back to New Earth anyhow. This little guy and I are leaving. The faceplate swung back down. The man was a machine again. His human cargo was safely stowed away inside the cushioned cave eel crate. Pray that you won't see any of our kind ever again. His robotic disguise told the three orphans. If we ever do come back to the room, it'll be to teach your alliance how to really fight. He lifted his apron and pointed to the little cartoon over his heart. But you don't need to worry. When others like me do come back, you'll be spared. You just have to tell them Kilroy was here. End of story. There is a new legend on the horizon. Blueberry Cat has taken the T6 Patreon spot. Thank you very much, and I am sure that I speak for everyone when I say that. I would just like to thank our T5 members. Lord Azrakal, Ambrose Cattell, Quantum Wednesday, Dregzoon WRE, Blueberry Cat, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Bushmaster 177, and Leslie 517. Thank you very much.